0: Therese, you owe me an apology.
1: Why?
0: Called me basic.
1: <laughs>
0: I was wearing a hoodie and she was like, oh, that's a really nice hoodie. What hoodie is that? It's an anorak, actually. Anorak.
2: Yeah, and I, then, I like the anorak a lot. And
0: then I took the anorak off. I like the off. anorak a lot. And then she's like, oh,
2: the Anorak. you makes look it, so
0: basic.
2: The anorak makes a huge difference on your outfit. This is Making It Up, episode 199, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Spoon, and Eugene Kahn. We come together on a weekly basis at FM Below Ground to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making Up is produced by It, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals.
0: Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex intertwined world we live in.
2: We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us.
0: Making it Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at Patreon patreoncom making. let's get into it.
2: It's because you're wearing like he's wearing a black baseball cap, outlier, plain black baseball cap, and a black tee, outlier, pants, black valence, merrell. I'm not arguing that they're like low quality brands. I'm just That's trying to fit all together. I'm just trying to
0: blend into my surroundings. I'm just not trying to bring attention to myself. All right,
2: you're seceding. It's a seating. Anyways, the Anorak is really nice. Where is the Anorak from? By Bora. Yes. Good stuff. Uh,
0: I'm gonna, Should I put it back on? Will you speak to me differently if I'm wearing it? No. Okay, I'll leave it off. Not, I was really hot. I was I'm not really warm.
2: judgmental like that. I don't also, know. I've known you a really long time. You yeah. could be wearing, I don't know, you could be wearing gold sequins. And I'm fairly certain I would speak to you exactly the same. You could be wearing, No, like, you would
0: probably you ask me why like, I'm wearing. I mean, I'd probably
2: ask you why, but I, the content of this podcast would not significantly change. True. No. I'm tired. Why? I got third shot on Sunday. Oh, yeah. And it actually hit me way harder than I thought it was going to. And I took Panadol over the last three days. Really? I've not been feeling it. And
0: great. you're not 100% yet.
2: I don't feel 100%. I feel like my brain's kind of slow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, people should still go get. Were you able to shot. teach? You, you should ask my students. Like you were still I able. Up. I mean, you wrote some <laughs> lengthy ass
0: shit on on Instagram. I
2: taught. I taught. Well, I took the Panadol and a cup of coffee right before my classes. So that I, constitutes
0: I, substance abuse.
2: It does it.
0: <laughs> Caffeine, Panadol.
2: Is that enough? Next thing you,
0: next thing I know, you're ripping a line of coke in the All bathroom. Right. Shortly,
2: <laughs> shortly before this recording, Arthur, our good friend who gives us the use of this lovely recording booth at FM Below Ground, Arthur was scaring me by telling me that apparently there's some cancer-causing substance oh my in God. coffee beans. And then Shen, our our other very lovely friend who works at F and Below Ground. Said that he
0: the, refuted it.
2: He refuted the news source that Arthur got it from. Oh my god, it's unreliable. Are and, you gonna share what new source this no, I'm is? I'm not going to. Why? Uh, I I was the one who said this. Okay, anyways, I the one who said where are you going above. with this? Where I'm going with this is that it would have made no difference to me. I'm not gonna change oh, wow. my coffee drinking habits.
0: If anything, coffee has been proven to reduce other things like Alzheimer's disease. I, I'm pretty sure
2: I mean, this is a lot of secondhand science.
0: No, it's not. Like, a, Anyways, well, I'm not going to go and fact check this on the air, but I know that it's anti-something. <laughs> Could be anti, It's either one of those two, or maybe both.
2: I believe you. I would also have been inclined to believe Arthur as well. Uh,
0: Arthur, I would not believe <laughs> on in regards to anything scientific. If it's about something like some underground, like, freaking music genre that three people have heard of, sure.
2: Okay, got it. I wonder if he listens to this podcast.
0: He doesn't. He might.
2: (laughs) Anyways. All right. You first or me? You go first. Good, because this way I might still retain the information. So my subject this week comes inspired by an article I read on The Verge written by Mia Sato. The subject of the article is, Buy Nothing Exploded on Facebook. Now it wants a platform of its own. And Buy Nothing is capital B, capital N. And it's a group, but also a movement. The author doesn't actually use the word movement, but that's how I would describe it. Because essentially, if you are part of a Buy Nothing group, what you participate in is giving and receiving things for free. It's all about gifting. So it's not just like a secondhand marketplace. It's like there's a deeper value that is that connects the members of this group, and those values are related to sustainability, but also community. That we would like to give away and receive things for free, and also it can't be a barter. Like that's part of the rules. Like it can't be, you know, trading rules. Like I'll trade you my microwave for yeah. your anorak.
0: Would you consider this a form of consumption?
2: Oh, interesting question. Well, I mean, it's not consumption the way it's usually defined.
0: I mean, I'm still consuming something, although I'm doing it in a different light. Like for me, it's kind of like scratching the itch of consumption without the negative effects. I mean, negative or relatively speaking, but like you're not spending money per se and you're not necessarily generating new waste. You're keeping it within the sort of ecosystem, I guess.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to read you a short paragraph near the top of this article. This is the essence of a buy nothing group. Instead of tossing what you don't need or buying something you do, try offering it up or asking your neighbors first. Bartering and trading are prohibited and users are required to give and receive freely. Everything given is worth the same, no matter the perceived value. Bikes and boats are listed next to dryer lint and chicken feces. So I thought that was quite interesting as well because we've talked about how is value determined in different industries or with regards to different products and services and in this case buy nothing sets the value of everything as equivalent Mm -hmm. which is quite radical to think of like because i think we you know as adults you've lived in society a long time and so you very naturally you see like a fast food meal and in your head it's like four dollars yeah usd yeah right or you see a jacket and you think that should be like 30 bucks something like that and so it's like unlearning something about the way you see items to think of all of them as equivalent to one another.
0: Yeah. I have so many questions, but I'll wait till you finish your initial so intro. I'll just
2: tell you a little bit more. I'll tell, well, cause I actually hadn't heard of Buy Nothing. I mean, I'm aware that people sell stuff and buy stuff on Facebook, but I hadn't heard specifically about this group. So the Buy Nothing project started on Facebook in 2013. And grew organically through closed Facebook groups. And they're now around 5 million members, according to the Buy Nothing moderators and founders. And it is completely financed by the project co-founders, Liesl Clark and Rebecca Rockefeller. And the reason why it, you know, made it onto the verge, because it's like it's been around for eight years, is because they have recently begun to try to move off of Facebook. So there are two reasons why I found this story interesting. One was just I'm into this these values of the Buy Nothing group. And also this challenge that they're facing is an interesting one where they want to become not reliant on existing social media platforms and they want to move onto their own created thing. Mm-hmm. And so they've created their own Buy Nothing app and they're not facing They're not facing like really strong resistance, but there hasn't been strong adoption of the app. And they're trying to make it make this transition as easy as possible. And to they understand that it's going to take some time. And it's a lot of negotiation with the, you know, buy nothing members. Yeah.
0: Not financial negotiation. Not
2: financial negotiation. More like like
0: selling in why it's better for you to move off Facebook.
2: Yes and negotiation of people's comfort levels and whether like that transition is going to you know cause them to just drop out of the community entirely right and a lot of people obviously feels like well why fix something that isn't broken it, from their perception that like being on facebook isn't a broken thing so what's one of your questions
0: my question is are people predominantly listing items that they cannot determine a fair value for or they feel it doesn't have the ability to move quickly in a for money transaction. Cause for example, let's look, I'm looking at a a set of turntables right now. Right. You wouldn't list that because you immediately have like a gut reaction that I could probably list this for more than, you know, X number of dollars and I could get a buyer or is it a ment? sorry, or is it a mentality thing where like, Hey, I actually just want to be able to like put this out into the world for somebody.
2: I think that's the case for some of the users that you're just putting up stuff that you couldn't get monetary value for. Like, let's say food, right? Like you've discovered, oh, I bought too much bread this week and I can't eat all of it before it goes bad. And who buys secondhand bread, right? Like that kind of situation. But then I think in some ways, maybe the, the people who are more well off And then really buy into the values part of buy nothing. Mm -hmm. They live in a way where they're willing to just give things for free, regardless of what the market value is. Yeah, they can afford it. Yeah, the turntables, for example, like they can afford. I don't need to resell this for its actual cost, and also I don't need it right now.
0: Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Like there are certain things where obviously everyone's valuation of $20 $20 in their hand is different, right? Like if me selling these turntables for max $20 means I have to take this, carry it over, meet somebody, they have to test it, then I'd almost rather not that inconvenience. But for someone else, like, yeah, I could sell something, get 20 bucks for it. Is it just a different, I guess, valuation and perspective of where you are currently? And I, I definitely see that a lot because I think in Hong Kong, because there's such a transient community, there's a lot of things people just give away because sometimes it's just more of a pain in the ass for me to go through the process of moving it, hiring a mover, et cetera. So it's just almost easier if I list this for free, come grab it. It's yours. Because actually I'm in a local neighborhood group that has a lot of that
2: Mm, where
0: it's like, hey, free couch, come and grab it.
2: I guess maybe part of my attraction to this article is that I'm not part of anything like that and also have never been a part of a group that behaved in that way. But reading this, I was like, this makes a lot of sense and fits right in with the type of thing I would like to live out in my life and then I was saying to you guys earlier like why do we not just do this in our group chats with mm-hmm. friends like I don't I don't know I can't pinpoint exactly what it is but also part of me my mind raised the question of are people embarrassed to ask for things for free and also embarrassed to just list things for free
0: i think if you know this group exists it flattens it right there's not any dance around oh like it's weird if i you know give this for free or ask for something for free yeah right i think you're actually flattening it and making a lot more clear
2: but if it's like in a group chat with friends then it's not so-called expected behavior
0: unless your friend group is just like down
2: i mean we're just like really honest with each other yeah but that's what i was thinking i was like well i don't know that i necessarily see the concept of buy nothing taking off in Hong Kong, even though I have heard of a smaller movement here called Ye, which is Cantonese for pick up stuff, essentially, where you can lay out stuff and people come by and just pick it up. And but then I was thinking, well, actually, you don't need to have in the same way that this started on Facebook, you really don't need to have a dedicated app. You just need enough people who are willing to talk about the things that they're giving away and what they need in life Mm -hmm. yeah and then the second part of this which is kind of unrelated to the fact of buy nothing the part where you move away from someone else's platform to your own created platform like i know that's a conversation that we've had before about making our you know ourselves and then also about other tools like what's the pro cons of moving off of slack for example? Yeah. You know, what's the difference between using Patreon versus having your own payment gateway?
0: Yeah. No. Totally. And like, it's something that's extremely difficult, especially if you don't have a lot of experience. I think there's actually a need to be experienced in determining the cost of switching. Like sometimes you don't consider that because if you're the one that's pushing it, you have the most familiarity. You probably learned about this tool on your own, but you know, most recently, I think it's just like a commitment to it. Like I think one thing that we've done a lot is try to figure out a way to project manage a bit better. And there's so many tools out there. And I would kind of selfishly push people to use Todoist, which is the tool I use. And I feel it's like, it's both economical, but also because it it serves a very clear and definitive purpose of just like accountability and task assignment. And it's maybe not the best for like planning a six month project, but what it does do is allow you to have very clear defined parameters if I review an agreement for somebody, I can just throw it up there. You can check it there. I, I assign it to you. When you're done, you send it off. It's gone. Versus like throwing it in a chat. And then, you know, if for whatever reason you don't get to it, you're like, oh man, where did I put it? But I think that's one thing that's really important is just like determining what tools are for and what tools are not for. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Arguably, like you could use a knife for a lot of things. You could use it to pry open something, but obviously it's not the most efficient use of it. So I think that's kind of how I've gone to it. And I, I also realized that for myself and even, even Nate, like we often are too detailed, meaning we, we try to design systems that often extend into edge cases that are overly complex because like it accounts for that one in 100 Mm. instance, right? Mm. Versus, Hey, you know what? Actually, success is just covering 75% of all our needs. And then the other 25 is like, oh, it happens once and it might be an inconvenience for a week. And then after that, it's out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, It's only when things actually become a recurring theme that you do address them in a more permanent manner.
2: I mean, I must say when I read this initially, I did feel concern for the buy nothing community where I felt like, A big push to move away from Facebook could, I don't know, like if they can weather it, because that's like what transitions can do. But Mm. then I was sort of convinced by what this founder said. A fresh platform owned and operated by people dedicated to buy nothing feels like a blank slate to build on. For instance, she says the borderlessness is an attempt at correcting a phenomenon of Facebook group boundaries that recreated historic redlined maps. Leadership is considering what it might look like to have participants have equity in the project or how Buy Nothing could partner with municipalities and states on educational programs around reuse and recycling efforts. So I think that's like in line with what you were saying about what can a tool do and what a tool can't do. Mm. And these founders, program leaders decided, well, where we want to take Buy Nothing in the future, Facebook can't do. Yeah, And it's not like the appropriate vehicle. So even though we might shed some percentage of our group in this transition, it's worth it because of this like longer term vision. And I respect that.
0: I mean, the reality of the situation is that you need to find the balance between servicing power users and moderate users and shedding the casual users.
2: Mm. Or the disruptors.
0: Disruptors. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Who are I think a different category?
0: yeah, it's 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 so interesting because it's such a challenge sometimes to find out where you lie in terms of a product, who a product is for. Obviously, for a lot of startups, they focus on a very passionate crowd, and as they grow or they're required to grow, they need to open up who they attract. But then it also comes to a point where like, where does that start and stop? Because mm-hmm. like at some point, you just dilute your product or no longer becomes a product for this person i think we actually have talked about this quite a few times i think visco was a good example of a product that was for professionals in the photography world especially like wedding photographers right and then look at it now it's an app for teenage girls but just like you know if that's the ma- the major sort of demographic and it's yeah. come a long ways and it's still like something that represents what it originally was which was a set of creative tools, but who it's for now is a little bit different. Like now you're sharing content with other people, for example. And in the original instance, that wasn't why you used it. And I actually used Visco or I used that type of tool almost the same way as its original inception. And that's for me to create a very clear, defined workflow and base of work to start, you know, tweaking stuff, Mm. right?
2: I mean, there's so many products we could talk about and trace that trajectory. Like, Facebook even.
0: Yeah. College students.
2: For sure. Yeah. The way Facebook started versus like how it's used today, which is very much multi-purpose tool. And then I'm also thinking about Apple products, different lines of them, like the MacBook Pro, which tried to expand its audience and ultimately wound up going back to their power user base. Yeah. But compare that to the iPhone, which was like started off with this small, you know, experimental audience and then now really has expanded to anyone, every person. So for me, I mean, my takeaway, really, if there's like a personal takeaway here is like, I was thinking I should just start telling friends when there are things I don't need or things I want and see like what comes out of the woodwork. And I think I'm okay with you know, either explaining, like, why well, I'm doing this or, like, taking a embarrassment hit if it's, like, perceived as... Yeah,
0: my friend expensive. was trying to give away a mattress the other day and, like, there were no takers.
2: Huh. But yeah. at least he tried. Yeah. All right, over to you.
0: I feel like so much of my weekly reading is consumed by web3 and nft so i'm always so excited when there's something that piques my interest that isn't from that world my topic this week is grandma's pierogies by kevin labuzz are you familiar with what a pierogi is yes yeah and you've had one before etc okay just check. i haven't
2: had one recently but i've had some good pierogies in my life which i enjoy in
0: hong kong or stateside
2: stateside oh
0: okay new york Actually, pierogies are really big in Alberta because there's a really big Ukrainian population. Obviously, pierogies kind of sit in the middle of a lot of different cultures, so okay, it's not this just like Ukrainian. A total aside. Yeah.
2: Because I know you're gonna talk about other things, but the pierogi is like an example. Me and my very good friend Joan have been talking about this before, of how every culture has a dumpling. Yep. Yep. And that's the Polish dumpling.
0: Ukrainian. Sorry, yeah. Ukrainian. Yeah, it could be no. I'm I'm just saying like that's kind of like hummus, right? Yeah. Where it's not just, oh, that's a Lebanese country. thing or something. Yeah. yeah so this piece was really interesting because it discussed a lot of the underpinnings of culture and also just corporate but in this, in some ways like community culture in my opinion, right And what it talks about is and what it, one of the big focuses of this piece is this notion of practical experience and unwritten knowledge and how it's really important for how I think not only science operates in advances, but also how culture advances. It starts off with that exact sort of like setting the scene with pierogies where the author, Kevin LeBuzz, suggests that pierogies are a simple food. And in terms of that, the ingredient list is quite simple. It's flour, butter, egg, and salt. And then, well, depending on what type of pierogi, the filling is also really straightforward. It's like potatoes, onions, butter, salt, and pepper. But that doesn't mean that to create this is an easy process because there's a lot of certain things that go into making it that you can't just like teach. Like, you can't just read a manual and be like, okay. I can make pierogies. I'm an expert. And then from there, he transitions into the work of Dan Wang, who's a writer who's primarily focused on the Chinese landscape, the whole market of China. And he says that technology is a combination of three different components: tools, such as lithography. Is that am I saying that right? Lithography. Machines? Yeah, that's correct. uh, Stoves, written instructions, such as blueprints and recipes, and practical experience. And for Dan, he suggests that the practical experience is actually the most important part of this whole process. And it's arguably why something like your grandma's pierogies are so good. Because there's that unknown factor, that X factor, that people can't really see that goes into them.
2: That you can't really write down or articulate.
0: Yeah. And he uses this quote, the most useful technology is not intellectual property in the form of written documents, but the unwritten knowledge in people's heads. Written instructions can't replicate practical experience. More futile is believing that entire technological industries might be captured in blueprints or reports. And there's a really interesting example that he used. So after World War II, American forces had access to a lot of documentation from the Germans. But when they took all that with them and they tried to process it and synthesize it, they actually ran into a lot of issues. And this is a quote from the piece. Much of the know-how is impossible to put into words, and no amount of given information can ever be a substitute for the information obtained in the hard school of practical experience.
2: This is why I have criticisms, and other people have criticisms, of those, like, work routine articles, like, How this successful person wakes up at 4.30 a.m. and drinks a cup of grapefruit juice, like that type of thing. Yeah. Because just having a written playbook doesn't mean that it works in your life.
0: Yeah. So after setting the scene with this, he goes on to talk about how culture, like corporate culture, is an extension of this practical knowledge and experience. And he also says that the way that a culture governs itself is in some ways by what sort of things you promote and what are some of the things you ignore. And I don't mean ignore as in like you don't take into account exists, but more so what are things that you put at the forefront? And Mm -hmm. one of the examples is that I'm using a lot of examples. If you're the employee of the month at IHOP, you've you're the employee of the month because of what you've done relative to the boss's requests, right? So if that's your culture, don't be surprised if other things aren't championed or they're not rewarded, such as creativity, generosity, connection, and leadership. But on the other hand, if you are rewarding employees who go out of their way to highlight things that didn't work, find solutions, um, take responsibility, provide credit to other people, stuff like that will go largely unrecognized, but they're probably more important or just as important to having a full functioning community or culture.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I totally, completely believe in this. I, I see how. This
0: is something works. that I think has come to light quite often, especially in this overly financialized and increasingly tokenized world. Is that because there's such a clear transaction or transfer, you start to focus on the wrong things, mm. right? And I think actually, what was it? I, I was listening to a podcast on Pinterest, and like you know, for them, one of the initial metrics was like how many monthly active users they had, and they realized that actually it wasn't hard for you to like generate new monthly active users, just like, you know, spam the shit out of the internet ads everywhere, whatever it may be. But the real success and what really moved the needle for Pinterest was how many people were pinning within a week. Mm. So like, and when I started to change what I measure, it also allows me to change the culture. And like the product you design is no longer about, Hey, you know what? I'm going to spam and I'm just going to, you know, sign up people. My, Product now is about, hey, or what I'm trying to create anyway is about to help people solve this challenge of, let's say, finding creativity or finding creative inspiration.
2: I mean, this is top of mind right now. I'm sure there are so many other examples out there, but did you see the news about Microsoft acquiring Activision Blizzard? They are acquiring Activision Blizzard, which makes games like Candy Crush, Call of Duty,
0: World of Warcraft.
2: Yes, more. Anyway, the point is. That is a really big purchase. It's $70 billion. But what's also interesting is that Activision Blizzard in the last year or so has our it's come to light that there's really large sex scandal allegations. Yeah. All the way just totally diffused throughout the company, top to bottom. And that's indicative of what a company chooses to ignore. Mm-hmm. You know, chooses to not to let some things go and probably like many years ago it started off really small and then it built up to this point built up to this point where it's like a fully blown going to court scandal and the company's being acquired that's what happens it starts from like you select someone as employee of the month or you doesn't you don't select another person then many years down the line yeah things snowball
0: yeah so the last segment of this piece also discusses the sort of like double-edged sword of having a strong company culture. So it uses the example of a Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturer, TSMC, who built their base and their success in Taiwan, but they started to expand into other parts of the world, such as the United States. So their work culture in the United States was something that was up for determination because as you know, what works in A certain culture, aka like Taiwanese culture, like working weekends, working 12 hour days, that is less well received in other parts of the world. So, what made them successful here is now under the microscope because can you just take wholesale the culture there and bring it into a new environment? Mm. Right. But at the same time, like because they had developed such a strong culture where everyone in Taiwan at the, you know, Taiwan operations were so aligned. It was very hard to replicate. So, like, that's kind of where it's a double edged sword. Where it works in in certain contexts, it's hard for you to expand upon culture and just scale
1: culture.
2: No, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Like, you might have something really bulletproof, solid, but so much of it is made up of these unwritten connections, elements that are, you know. That you can't articulate or write or pass down, and so there's just you can't make a copy of it. How do you do that? You'd have to have like, like clones of the exact same people and circumstances.
0: Yeah. Curious for you as a teacher and it's kind of like a new teacher. Yeah. What is a culture of teaching that you want to promote to your students, and how do you think that it's maybe based off a different different set of expectations than the norm? Mm. Like if the norm is at a very base level, oh, obedience, right? And obviously, no no teacher wants. disobedient class but like maybe that's too simplistic of an expectation it's like hey you know what especially i think that and i'm not trying to typecast but like you know i've i've been in situations where a lot of people have said that oh my students in this part of the world asia generally don't have a lot of questions to ask so how would i actually change that or is it something beyond you where it's like hey you know culturally i'm fighting upstream against cultural norms that are like different than what a teaching style can help rectify
2: Sure. I mean, I'm a new teacher as you said, and many people who are smarter than I and who have taught for longer have written about this and I'm reading this book called Teaching to Transgress, which is by bell hooks, who we talked about in the wrap up, and she writes about um how there is a term for the obedient schooling system called the banking model and essentially it's just like trying to direct transfer direct deposit knowledge into students mm. heads and each student is the same as like a and it is a deposit account and i just deposit like directly the knowledge i have into the, their heads and so she writes against that type of education and she questions ex- exactly the question you've raised she questions this idea of like the obedient classroom as being the best classroom and to say that actually like When teachers aspire to have like well-behaved students, that's unlikely to be a classroom where students are learning as much as they could, Uh because that means that they are not using their brains. They're not challenging you. They're not thinking on their own. And the the model where they actually do learn more is one where a teacher might actually feel uncomfortable. Because it's going to be an environment where students feel like they can question you and they can speak up and they can they can say, hey, I I don't understand this or I, I disagree with you. Yeah. Right. And for a teacher. Yeah. Like I say this as something I aspire to, but sure, it does make me feel uncomfortable. The idea that I could be
0: questioned. Questioned.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's human. Right. But I do genuinely like want that to be the case. Yeah. I'm, not that I'm afraid of being questioned, but I don't think anyone wants to stand up in front of 40 people and then be embarrassed. Yeah. Right. Which is what a classroom can possibly be. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of aspirations, you were saying I posted a bunch of really long stuff on IG recently. And this is going to sound so simple, but I just continue to try to think of students as humans in the same way that I'm a human. And that like, I'm not, even though I'm a teacher and paid to be here and they pay the school to sit in the same classroom, like I just want to meet them on a regular relationship level. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes a really big difference.
0: Yeah. I mean, ultimately I think success or like convincing people is like managing their expectations. So in the context of a teacher, obviously I'm not a teacher. I teach differently, not in a school setting, but like, you know, maybe you're working with a.
2: A, lot a new of hire. people
0: in your life, though.
2: Sure. Dismissed um, <laughs> me out of hand. I
0: don't, yeah. You know I don't take compliments well. Okay. But I think, I think that it's like managing people's expectations because if you're a teacher and you make it known that, hey, you know what, there are going to be parts of this course where we're going to discuss on things that I'm basing it off my experience. Because so, there's going to be some parts of teaching, I assume are also up for interpretation. Not everything is purely factual and objective, right? Yeah. So I think that when you manage the expectations of people and be like, hey, there's going to be a bucket within this class where we're just actually going to talk about things. It's going to be you questioning me, me questioning you. And it's for you to defend. And like, I think difference of opinion, obviously is something that you generally should welcome in an academic setting. But it's like it's, it's a really interesting thing because I think that if, if there's anything that I want to be proud of, it's just the ability to like really let go of, Shitty ideas or like ideas that are invalidated. Sure. Right. So, like, obviously, it it can be challenging if you do it too quickly because you don't have a point of view. But I think at the same time, like, I'm always trying to understand, like, hey, you know what? I have a point of view. It's a reference, roughly speaking. I always use this analogy, but like, as much as we want to go in a straight line, the reality is that like it's kind of bendy, right? You know, sometimes one moment in your life might pull you more to the left and you'll still go forward. Mm. And then some other thing happens and you get pulled to the right. And like, but generally speaking, you're kind of progressing on a path forward.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think if if I have an aspiration for like culture of, I don't know, like, yes, as a teacher, but also, I unfortunately, if you're my friend, I think I also have this expectation of my friends is that you don't have to take everything I say, you know, whether that's advice or as fact or whatever, but I would like us to be able to collectively consider ideas and that there's the possibility that something is accepted or rejected equally and that you don't start by making the assumption that something's going to be accepted Mm. or rejected right yeah and i say friends as well because i think that's true like in order to have a good conversation with someone there has to be the possibility that they will apply their own perspective thoughtfully To whether what you're saying is true or not or useful or not. Mm -hmm. The thing that is difficult for me with the uh, grandma's pierogies article is accepting that you really cannot pass down that intangible practice part.
0: You can, but you can't because I think the, the part that you can do it. And, you know, here's a great example. My pops like retired. After working at the same company for fifty years, and I'm like, dude, man, like, was it fifty years? No, it wasn't. It's was some long ass time. Anyways, when he left, I was thinking, man, there's a lot of like stuff locked into that that brain, and like, the only way in which you can actually actively pass on knowledge is if you build that culture of investment in the future, because that mm-hmm. means that you're building in opportunities where I'm able to work side by side with someone more experienced, so I can understand and go through the same, you know, processes that he goes through and he's gone through for the last 20, 30 years. Right. And at some point there might be something that happens that I'm not aware of. And it wasn't part of, you know, the the two years I shadowed him, but at some point there is something there that helps form the basis. Like I just came out of a meeting today with a client that needed help with like structuring design systems for all their assets they create for social media. Right, and I think that the big thing there's two things that came out of that conversation. It's like, well, first, build like a set of principles and a guideline, right? Like a, a, a like a a loose handbook, maybe not loose, but like you know, a handbook, right? And in that handbook, obviously, you're going to account for hopefully the majority of situations that arise. Uh, but on the same note, I was like, hey, you know what? What's really important is that you you document this to the best of your ability, so that when someone else comes in, you've given them as much of a baseline as possible. Which I think document documentation does. But then from there, like the harder part of filling in the gaps, you're there and you can just focus on that. So I think that's the one thing that, you know, m- most recently I've kind of defaulted to this belief system that when it comes to instructing and teaching people, you're, you're really trying to get as far forward as possible from a baseline perspective. So like if, 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 you know, I, I hire Charisse, how quickly can I get her to a uh, 75% level? Knowing the other 25 is like attaining a level of like super expertise, which is really hard because you can't teach that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you, you know, giving that hypothetical of 75 percent, 25 percent, because. I suppose the reason why I raise this question of like, surely there is a way to capture some of that intangible, difficult to articulate stuff, because that's how collective human knowledge and innovation progresses. Because new generations don't start over from scratch. There's, like you said, there's going to be some 60, 75% that you build onto to reach the next point. Like I read an article or part of an article recently about how Wikipedia handled documenting the mm-hmm. COVID 19 pandemic over the last two years. And there was a complimentary article that said that Wikipedia and all of the editors really. More thoroughly than like news media integrated new covid nineteen news into all of the existing scientific journals, articles, mm. et cetera, so that it wasn't just like slapdash, here's the new info. They worked off of all of you know these many histories of scientific uh, studies to extend into, you know what what do we add that's pandemic related? And that's like what I think about how. Our human knowledge continues, like where we are at at this point in time, then what happens after us, like Mm -hmm. our generation is we must be transferring some amount onwards.
0: Yeah. So to wrap things up, I just have this last passage from the piece. Not very long, pretty straightforward. The weight of accumulated decisions and cultural know-how is what's rare and valuable. It takes a lot more than a kitchen and a recipe to make a good pierogi.
2: All right. Off to dinner? Off to dinner. For listeners, it is 6.30 p.m. All right. That is a good place to wrap off for the day. A huge shout out and thanks to our recording location, FM Below Ground. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, books on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com.
0: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcasts and platforms. If you like this podcast, You can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon.
2: Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And
0: this is Making It Up.